will tomorrow ever come? Huh. Hmm, why can't fish get seasick? I have a question. Why does the Easter Bunny bring eggs if rabbits do not lay eggs? The opposite of opposite the same or opposite? What? Why is a pizza box square when a pizza is round? If the truth is different for each of us, how can we call it the truth? If you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to hold it up right now and repeat with me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth. For what we believe and how we live. Now turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I grew up in a home where we believed the Bible, we read the Bible, and, and we studied the Bible as a family. And the church I grew up in really did believe and teach the Word of God. No matter whether it was a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, a Wednesday night, or, or some special event, the Word of God, the Bible, was always central. And one of those special events that happened every year during the summer was VBS, Vacation Bible School. Kind of like our, our summer fest that we just had. A lot of similarities, but yet there was some differences we would we would stand outside in front of the church building we would line up by our classes and our ages and then we would march in and then after everybody marched in we would say the pledge to the American flag the pledge to the Christian flag and then we would say the pledge to the Bible do any of you remember that the pledge to the Bible well here it is on the screen I want you to say it with me I pledge allegiance to the Bible God's holy word and will make it a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, and hide its word in my heart that I may not sin against God. We would say that every morning, five days in a row, every single summer, we would say that pledge to the Bible. And after we said that pledge, we would sing a song about the Bible. Sometimes we'd sing this song, oh, the B-I-B-L-E. Oh, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I'm glad I grew up in, in that kind of church. In our church today, we believe the Bible. We have some essential beliefs that we hold to that are dear to us, and one of them has to do with what we believe about the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the inspired, perfect Word of God. We said that just a couple of minutes ago. And the Bible is so important to us that if the Bible is not true, then most everything else we believe would fall like a house of cards. You see, we as followers of Jesus, we have a worldview that is built on the Bible. 
But the question we need to ask ourselves is, can we really trust the Bible? For our Q&A series, we had someone write this question in. How can we believe the entire Bible is true? Aren't there contradictions? How can we know each writer was inspired by God? Now, as far as the question about the contradictions, we can answer that question very easily. Because if you do a careful study of Scripture, you will discover that there are no contradictions in Scripture. There are some passages that that may be harder for us to understand with our 21st century mind, but there are no contradictions in Scripture. But as far as the question, how can we know each writer was inspired by God, that's a little more difficult to answer. And the reason it's a little more difficult to answer is because each and every one of us are going to have to come to our own conclusion that the Bible is inspired by God. You see, I grew up never doubting, never, never not believing that the Bible was the Word of God. But the reality is many people don't grow up the way that I grew up. Many people today have questions about the Bible. They, they don't believe that there's anything particularly special about the Bible. Some of those people grew up in, in families and homes that never went to church. They were never taught the Bible, so they never learned to respect the Bible. There are other people that, that grew up in homes where other faiths were practices, and those other faiths had their own books that they felt like were holy and and sacred the truth of the matter is almost every religious group throughout the world has books or writings that that they consider sacred writings that reveal to them who God is and writings that reveal to them how they can know God better the the Muslims have the Quran the the Hindus have the Veda as their sacred scripture the the Buddhists have the Tipitaka is, is the book that teaches them about divine truth. Mormons have the Book of Mormon that they believe was given to Joseph Smith that completes the Bible. The Jehovah's Witnesses have the New World Translation of the Bible. It's a Bible where some verses have been left out, other verses have changed. And then we have our Bible that you held up today. And the question we have to ask is, how can we know whether the Book of Mormon or the Koran or the sacred writings of some other religion or our Bible is true? Well, let's begin by, by seeing what the Bible says about itself. Because if the Bible doesn't claim to be true, then that kind of settles it right there, doesn't it? So what does the Bible claim about itself? Well, let's start with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we do are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. Now, notice what Paul said. He said, All Scripture. All Scripture. Now, that word all is the, the Greek word pos. It means every part and parcel, every single bit. What Paul is saying is not... Some of Scripture is inspired by God. He's saying all of Scripture is inspired of God. From the very beginning of Scripture to the very end of Scripture, every single part of it, every single word is inspired by God. That's what Paul is saying. But then he says that it's inspired by God. 
Now that three-word phrase is one Greek word. It's actually a Greek compound word. The, the word is theonumos. It comes from two Greek words, the word theos, God, the word pneumos, which means spirit or breath. And together that compound word means God breathed from the mouth of God. And so what Paul is saying is all scripture, every single word from the very beginning to the very end is given to us from the very mouth of God. It comes to us through the breath of God. That's what Paul said about scripture. Now what about Jesus? Well, in John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you remember the story where he brings his disciples with him and says, could you not pray with me for one hour? Well, this is one of the things that he's praying as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we discover here that one of the things he did was he prayed for his disciples. And in John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus said, make them holy by your truth, teach them your word which is truth. Jesus said, just as I am truth, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just as I am truth, God's word is truth. Now, what was he talking about? Well, he was referring to the scriptures. He was referring to the Old Testament at that time, the, the law and the prophets and the writings, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophetic books that talk about history and tell us about the prophets and the writings, Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon, those books. And Jesus said, God's word is truth. Now the word he uses for true is the word authoritative. It's God's word is authoritative. It is the authority in our life. And so let me ask you, is God's word the authority in your life? Because Jesus said, that it is the authority, it's supposed to be the authority in our life. And then in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is writing his second epistle, his second letter. And in verses 20 and 21, he says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No. Those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. You see, it's important for us to understand that, that Peter did not say that, that what the prophets wrote was something that originated in their minds or in their hearts. It, it was something that they spoke as they were moved by God. In other words, God used their personalities, God used their intellect, God used their experiences, but God communicated what God wanted to communicate through the words of those prophets. The prophets opened their mouth and out came the word of God. You see, Scripture says of itself that it is the word of God, which comes straight from the mouth of God through the lips of man. But is it? Is the Bible God's word? Well, this morning, I want you to leave here with a deep belief in your heart that the Bible is indeed a one-of-a-kind book, different from any other book ever written. And you can trust it, not only with your life, how to live, but you can trust it with your eternal life, how you can live forever. Now, I want to begin by answering the question, how did we get our Bible? Because understand, the Bible that I'm holding up right now this isn't the, the, the original Bible that, that Moses 
wrote some of the books, and David wrote some of the books, Solomon wrote some of the books. This isn't the original one. And the truth of the matter is, we don't have the original. But you need to realize when it comes to ancient history, there are no books from ancient history where we have the original copies. Because the books in ancient history from thousands of years ago, they were written on papyrus. And, and the scribe or the person in this case who was being led by God would write down what God wanted them to say. And then that papyrus, that, that letter or that book would be passed around and it would be read to people and groups of people, but the papyrus would wear out and it would begin to fall apart because that's just what it did. And so a scribe would take that original and, and they would make a copy of it. And when the original wore out, they had the copy and they would use the copy and the copy would be read and, and would be listened to. But it would wear out because it was on papyrus. And, and that happened over and over and over again throughout history, both with the Old Testament books and the New Testament books. And over the years, there have been thousands of copies of the Word of God, the, the writings in the Old Testament, the writings in the New Testament that have been written down by scribes. And over the centuries, many of these have been found, literally thousands of them, Thousands upon thousands of them have been found. Not, not whole copies of the entire Bible, but perhaps the book of Matthew, perhaps the book of Psalms, perhaps part of another book. And, and they would bring these together, and, and as they looked at them and they would analyze them, what was amazing is this. Out of all of those thousands upon thousands of copies that archaeologists found, they were thousands of years old. There were no major discrepancies in any of them. They all said the same thing. Now think about that for just a moment. There was nothing that changed the meaning of any passage of Scripture that was written. What that tells me is that God had his hand on the writing and the copying of Scripture throughout history to protect it. But let's go a little bit deeper. How did we get these 66 books that we have in our Bible? Because you see, we have 39 books in our Old Testament. There are, but there are some other books. Did you know that? There are some books called the Apocrypha. But we don't consider them Scripture. We don't consider them sacred, inspired. They're useful to be read. They may help you learn some things about Jewish history, but we don't consider them part of God's Word. And in the New Testament, the 27 books that we call God's Word, there were other Gospels, there were other epistles, there were other letters that were written. Why were these 27 chosen? Well, when it comes to the Old Testament Scriptures, the books of the Old Testament were accepted by the Jews as God's Word well before 256 B.C. That's when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And this is the Bible that many people had when Jesus was walking on earth. When Jesus talked about the scripture, he was talking about the 39 books of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the writings, that's what they were referred to. And Jesus said that, that the word of God, the scripture, the Old Testament scriptures were authoritative. They could be trusted. They could be counted on. They spoke 
truth. And Jesus quoted many of these. But then when you get to the New Testament, it's a little bit different. You see, after Jesus died, you can imagine that if a man taught like Jesus taught and then was crucified on a Roman cross for the world to see, but three days later rose from the grave, people are going to write about that, aren't they? And a lot of people began to write about Jesus' life. And as people became followers of Jesus, they would write letters to one another. And many of these, the early church, by consensus, began to believe were sacred. But there were some, there were some things that they had to meet to be considered sacred. First of all, it had to be written close to the time of Jesus in the first century. Second, it had to be written by an apostle or someone directly connected to an apostle. For instance, Mark was, was a companion of Peter and, and Luke was the physician of the apostle Paul. The writing had to be consistent with the Old Testament and the apostolic teachings. And the writing had to be accepted in churches throughout the known world. In other words, it could not be accepted by one group of believers and not be accepted by another group of believers. If it was considered part of Scripture, then all believers had to accept it. And all these requirements prevented the Bible from being corrupted and made sure that it was accurate and what God wanted presented. And by the end of the first century, 20 of the 27 books that we call our New Testament were already considered sacred. 20 of the 27. The four Gospels, the book of Acts, the 13 letters of Paul, 1 Peter, 1 John, were all considered part of Scripture by that time. Now, if you take those 20 books, every essential doctrine that we hold dear today, every belief, that we live by, that we hold to, is taught in those 20 books. So if those are the only books we had, then everything that we need, we already had. That was the first century. Now remember, it was in the first century that Jesus lived. It was in the first century that the church was born. It was in the first century that, that Paul did his missionary journeys. And by the end of the first century, 20 of the 27 books were already accepted as part of history. In the second century, there was this bishop named Marcion. He was called a heretic. He, 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 was, he, he, he tried to take the Bible and cleanse it of what he said was impurities. And so he left out, he rejected the Old Testament. He rejected three of the Gospels, several of Paul's letters, and he cleansed it of any Old Testament influence. Now, what you need to understand is Marcion was excommunicated by his own father for adultery. Marcion was living a, an ungodly life, and his father excommunicated him because of that. And Marcion then wanted to rewrite the Bible so that it went along with his lifestyle. And so he removed anything from the Bible that had to do with sexual sin. Now, isn't that kind of what we do today? I mean, I've met people today that say, well, I believe this in the Bible, but I don't believe that. This is more cultural. I don't think it applies today. Have you ever met people like that? And what people like that are oftentimes doing is they're trying to remove those things in the Word of God that they don't like, that, that they don't believe apply to us today. And that's what Marcion was doing. But here's the important thing you need to understand. For Marcion to write his own Bible, there had to be a Bible. Because he was rejecting the Bible of his day. 
by 303 A.D., Diocletian became the emperor of Rome. And Diocletian issued this edict that declared himself Lord and God. And that began the, the greatest persecution of Christians up until that day. And at that time, Diocletian, as part of his edict, said that every Bible was to be burned. Now, you need to understand, if every Bible was going to be burned that they could find, there had to be Bibles by that time. And so by 303 A.D., there was a Bible. And they believed it was a Bible. The early church formally ratified the 27 books of the New Testament, the Council of Hippo, in, in 393 A.D., and at the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D., but what you need to understand is those councils weren't declaring these 27 books scripture. These councils were already or simply declaring what the church already believed. These words are scripture. I want you to listen to what F.F. Bruce said, who is one of the foremost authorities on the compilation of the Bible. He said, one thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. Now, and upon the Christian communities, well, direct and indirect, what these councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of those communities. What F.F. Bruce is saying is the church did not start believing that these 27 books were scripture because this council said it. The church already believed this, and the council was simply ratifying this. I want you to listen to what someone else said. I think it's a great quote. They said, a fallible church chose what we believe is an infallible list of books that comprise our Bible. A fallible church chose what we believe is an infallible list, which is our Bible. God used flawed people in the writing of Scripture. And God used flawed people in the compilation of Scripture. But in that process, he gave us a flawless, perfect Bible. So is there evidence that would say to us that the Bible is the Word of God? And I would say to you, yes, there is if you're looking to believe. But I would say, no, there isn't. If you don't want to believe, because if this evidence is going to have an effect on your life, you've got to have a desire to know what the truth is. And so let me give you some pieces of evidence. First of all is the historic evidence. For years, the historical accuracy of the Bible has come under attack. It's been criticized by so-called intellectuals, but in spite of all of their criticism, the Bible has been proven to be historically accurate. 100% of the time. Let me give you an example. So Jesus tells us that Moses wrote the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus says this. The five books of, first five books of the Old Testament are attributed to Moses. But many historical scholars today, many historians say that Moses could have never written the first five books of the Bible. And the reason is because that they did not have a written form of communication when Moses lived. But then they found something called the Code of Hammurabi. And the Code of Hammurabi is a legal code 
that was written in a known language three centuries, 300 years before Moses was ever born. And so if there was a legal code that was written down in a known language 300 years before Moses was born, obviously Moses could have written the first five books of the Old Testament. For many years, skeptics questioned whether Sodom and Gomorrah were actually a city. Many people said that it was a mythological city. It did not exist. But then archaeologists discovered tablets that mentioned both of those cities in them. Nelson Glusick, who was the former president of the Jewish Theological Seminary in Cincinnati and one of the greatest archaeologists of the 20th century, said this. He said, I've never found one artifact that contradicts any statement in the Word of God. He said there's nothing that's been found historically that can invalidate anything that the Bible says. So there's historic evidence. What about scientific evidence? Well, I want you to know that science has never come up with anything that invalidates the Bible. The truth of the matter is science offers more evidence on the authenticity of the Bible than it does raise questions. Let me give you an example. First, the worldwide flood. For years, scientists have said that a worldwide flood never happened. That if there was a flood, it was a regional flood. But more and more scholars, scientists around the world are now saying that there's evidence for a worldwide flood. The fossils of marine life have been found in the highest mountains in the world. How did they get there? unless at one point that was covered by water. Years ago, our family was at the Grand Canyon vacationing, and we were taking this tour, and our tour guide said this as he was talking about the Grand Canyon. He said, at one time, this entire canyon was underwater. And then he told why. And I went, well, duh. I already knew that. The Bible says that. Did you know that if you take a map of the world, and you cut out all of the oceans from that, you can pretty much, like a jigsaw puzzle, put the countries and continents of the world together like a jigsaw puzzle. Many people today, scientists today, are saying that at one point there was some kind of cataclysmic event that literally rocked the foundation of the earth and caused the oceans to form. Well, a worldwide flood would have done that. So there's evidence. The Bible says that the earth was round 1,600 years before man figured it out. Isaiah 40, verse 22. The Bible tells us that blood sustains life 3,300 years before man would agree with that. Levit Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. The Bible says that the stars in the sky cannot be numbered 3,000 years before astronomers figured that one out. Genesis 15, verse 5, 22, verse 17. The Bible said that man is made from the same materials as the earth 3,200 years before man figured that one out. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. When we lived in Orlando, there was a cover article in the Orlando Sentinel, and it, and it said this, man is made from clay. And it went on to say how the makeup of a human being is the same minerals that is found in clay. And I went, well, the Bible tells us that in Genesis chapter 1. You see, science does not discredit the Bible. 
Science validates the Bible. But then there's prophetic evidence. And the New Testament and the Old Testament both have prophetic evidence. The Old Testament gives us prophecies of things that happen hundreds of years in the future. And they happen just like the Old Testament tells us. We're told that the children of Israel would be slaves in a foreign land, and they were. We were told how long they would be slaves in that foreign land, and that's how long they were. We're told in the book of Daniel about future kingdoms that would come and the nationalities that would arise, and those exact nationalities came into power just as Daniel prophesied. We are told amazing prophecies over and over again that, that, that happened just as the prophets said. But I want to focus in on prophecies about Jesus. You see, the Old Testament prophets were all looking for the Messiah. They were longing for the one who would come and save them and deliver them. And many of the Old Testament prophets wrote about that Messiah, how he would be born, how he would live, how he would die, what would happen in his life. And the amazing thing is, is all of those prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that he would live in Galilee, that he would be born during the time of the Roman Empire, that he would die for our sins around 31 A.D. Daniel chapter um, 9 verses 24 and 25 say that. He would be crucified, Psalm 22. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah chapter 11. No other book in human history has ever prophesied with such accuracy as the Bible. Peter Stoner has a book entitled Science Speaks, and he talks about the mathematical probabilities of just eight of the prophecies of, uh, of the Messiah being fulfilled in one person. And he says that um, for that to happen would be one in 10 to the 17th power chance of happening. And then he says to demonstrate what that looks like, he said this is what you would need to do. You would need to go to the state of Texas. Texas is a pretty big state. And you would cover the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep. Think about that. Silver dollars covering the entire state of Texas two feet deep. And then you take just one of those silver dollars and you mark it. And then you take a person, you blindfold them, you take them out into the middle of the state and say, pick one silver dollar. And he said the chances of that blindfolded man picking that one silver dollar that's been marked that covers the entire state of Texas two feet deep is one in ten to the seventeenth power. The chances of Jesus fulfilling every prophecy that the Old Testament talks about is astronomical and yet Jesus did that, the prophetic evidence. And then there's thematic evidence. I want to remind you, the Bible is not one book. It's 66 books that are compiled into one. It is written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 35 different people. David was a king. Peter was a fisherman. Luke was a, a doctor. Matthew was a tax collector. Some were shepherds and herdsmen. It was written on three different continents and palaces and palaces and in prison. The Bible was written in three different languages, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. It contains legal codes, 
history, poetry, prophecy, biographies, letters. But this book of 66 books written over 1,500 years was written with one single purpose in mind. From cover to cover, it has the same purpose, to point people to Jesus. Let me say that again. A book that was written by 66, that are actually 66 different books written by 35 different people that many of them did not know one another over 1,500 years with different cultural backgrounds. All of them wrote with one purpose in mind. How could that happen? But yet it did. Every single one of them wrote to point people to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39. This is the, the message translation. I love how it says this. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders who, who read the Old Testament scriptures. He said, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you're missing the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. Jesus was telling the religious leaders of his day, you're, you're reading the scriptures and you're missing what it's all about. These scriptures are trying to convince you that, that I am the Messiah. When John came to the end of his, his gospel in John 20, 31, he said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John was saying, I'm writing my gospel so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ. But I believe that God sovereignly gave us that word because I don't think it just applies to the Gospel of John. I think it applies to the entire Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, God gave us a book to point us to Jesus. You say, why? Well, look at Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of man. Sin enters the human race. And in Genesis chapter 3, God reveals a promise to Adam and Eve. He tells them that the seed of woman will one day crush the head of the serpent that brought sin into the world. That seed of woman, Jesus, born of a virgin. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his only son on Mount Moriah. And Abraham willingly goes with his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah to kill his son as a sacrifice to God. God says, don't do it. I'll provide a sacrifice. And there was a ram caught in the briars, and that ram became the sacrifice that was offered. That ram that was offered as a substitute, it's Jesus. In the book of Exodus, the people are in slavery and bondage to the Egyptians, and God tells them to take a Passover lamb and, and slay that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of the house, and that blood will protect the people as the death angel comes by. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And as we go from Genesis all the way through Revelation over and over and over again, we see Jesus on each and every page. And yes, listen, the Bible teaches us how to manage our finances. We need to follow what it says. The Bible teaches us how to have good marriages. We need to follow what it says. The Bible teaches us how to be good employees and good employers, and we need to follow what it says. But that's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is to point you and me to Jesus. 
who is our only hope. From Genesis to to Revelation. Thematic evidence. This book that's really 66 books written over 1,500 years by 35 different people has one theme. And his name is Jesus. But there's one final evidence I want to share with you, and that's changed lives. See, throughout history, God has been using his word to change people's lives. I have a friend that that lives in the upstate. He used to be an evangelist. His name's Don Stanley. He was a pharmacist that got hooked on drugs and started selling pharmaceutical drugs to people and um, got caught got thrown in federal prison. Don was a gifted athlete. He played baseball for USC. He was drafted in the pros, but went on to pharmacy school, ended up in federal prison. One day while I was sitting in his prison cell, the day after the man in the cell with him had killed himself, he found a Gideon New Testament in a trash can. In desperation, he began to open that book and read it. That book changed his life set him free everything has changed I'm here to tell you God's word changes lives when I was eight years old I was sitting in the back of a church something like this but much smaller and God's word was opened up and somehow some way the Holy Spirit used that word that was proclaimed to absolutely rivet my life I became convicted of my sin and I Trusted Jesus to be my Savior, and everything changed. Haven't been perfect since then, far from it. But I'm here to tell you that at eight years of age, Jesus changed me from the inside out. See, the Word of God changes lives. You may be here this morning, and you say, I don't know if I believe that. If you're here, and you're really seeking, you're really searching, you really desire to know truth, here's what I challenge you to do. Take the New Testament, start with the book of Matthew, read 15 minutes a day. If you do that, you'll probably read through the New Testament in a little over a month. Read it 15 minutes a day, and after you read it, say, Dear God, if you're real, show yourself to me. If you're real, reveal that you are who you say you are. And I'm here to tell you, I believe with all my heart, that God will use his word to change you from the inside out. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 that God's word is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It is able to cut us to the very depths of who we are. God's word will do that if we open it with a sincere heart and a searching mind. Oh, God's word will change your life. So let me ask you this morning, has the Holy Spirit used God's word to point you to Jesus? Because that's God's desire. This book, and it's amazing. Because my wife and I have followed the principles of this book for, for our finances, we believe we're where we're at today. Because we have sought to follow the principles in this book for our marriage, we're still married, though she's married to one crazy guy. As we've sought to apply this book to our life together, God's used it in pretty much every area of our life to help us and guide us and direct us. But nothing is more important 
than opening up this book and finding Jesus. And so if you're here and you haven't given your life to Jesus, then I want to challenge you today. Today, hear his voice. Respond to his call. Let him save you. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. With your head bowed, your eyes closed, I don't know where you are spiritually. But I do know that God loves you. I do know he desires to have a relationship with you. I do know that he wants you to be in his forever family in heaven with him. And my prayer is that today, if you don't know him, you will humble yourself and then have the courage to come and take one of our pastors by the hand and say, I want Jesus, what do I need to do? And either myself or Pastor Scott or Pastor Matt would be happy to tell you, hey, here's how Jesus can make all the difference in the world. Maybe you're here and you already know Jesus. You just need someone to pray with you. Maybe you need to come down to the altar and pray for your family. Or maybe you need to come down to the altar to make a commitment to get into God's Word. Because God's Word is not valuable as an authority until you're into God's Word. So let me encourage you today. Do what God wants you to do. Father God, this is your time. I ask you to have your way in each and every one of our lives. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name.